Hi, my name is Kailani, and in this month's podcast, we're going to first discuss our chosen hot topics we thought would be quite relevant, and in a separate episode, we'll go further into this month's topic that is National Immunization Month. I have a few people joining us for this episode, so why don't you guys introduce yourself real quick before we get started. So, hi everyone. My name's Alexa. I'm a junior, and I'm very passionate about climate change. Hi, my name is Sofia, and I am also a junior. I'm passionate about more accessible abilities for disabled people. Uh, hi, my name is David and I'm a junior. I'm passionate about politics and policy. And finally... Hi, I'm Cahill. I'm a senior and I am passionate about uh, world development. Alright, so just a brief overview of what we're going to be talking about. We're going to first start off with the Taliban insurgency, which correlates with the Kabul airport attack. And finally, we're going to be ending it all with the Philippines and the current situation uh, with COVID-19. So starting off with the Taliban insurgency, it's been all over the news lately. And in around a month, what used to be an evenly contested country is now almost entirely under the control of the Taliban terrorist organization. And the primary causes for this insurgency are the withdrawal of U.S. troops and the minimal resistance from Afghan forces during the Biden administration. Although unintentional, this was simply a miscalculation of the Afghan resistance against the Taliban and U.S. protection. And President Joe Biden of the U.S. supports the decision to withdraw U.S. troops from Afghanistan, stating that there was never a good time to withdraw U.S. force. And since 2001, the U.S. has spent $2.26 trillion in Afghanistan, according to estimates from the Cost of War Project at Brown University. And in areas under Taliban control, unfortunately, females are not allowed to attend school past puberty, which has led to many uh, gender inequality and inequity issues in the area. David, would you like to continue on discussing the Kabul airport attack? The Kabul airport attack was a suicide bombing incident close to the Kabul airport amid um, evacuations and mass migrations toward the terminals given the Taliban's control of um, all of Afghanistan. Um, On the note on why this all generally happens, I've read an article from The Guardian saying that as a whole, it wasn't necessarily the lack of funding or training provided by the U.S. military, but instead the lack of transparency and lack of merits of um, scaling how the Afghan government forces were Uh, effective in actually fighting the Taliban. Um, Multiple reports show that uh, government officials and military officials were actually unable to properly quantify how good of a fighting force the Afghan military was. And so, again, with the withdrawal of troops, it was essentially the start to a snowballing of uh, rapid uh, destabilization in the country. Yeah, I think that's sort of a important issue though when it comes to anyone invading a country like Afghanistan because of how like just mountainous and rural it is um when the United States first entered Afghanistan it was a totally different thing but the Taliban were in charge then now that they're back in charge um they say that they're a less extreme organization now but what people are probably more questioned about is what they mean by that and how that affects them especially since um, how decentralized the country is and the Taliban system. And then you also have the fact that the Taliban are also warring with other groups like ISIS-K, who I think was uh, behind the attacks. 
according to the article that I read the other day about about the um rival groups. But yeah, it's probably going to be a bit more of a slog on after that. Yeah, I just kind of wanted to add on to that. So I read the transcript of the Taliban's first news conference, and so it was of the Taliban spokesperson addressing the public for the first time uh, since the group's takeover of Afghanistan. And I think a big takeaway was their uh, consistent or constant mention of women's rights. And so they were saying that they would respect women's rights and forgive those who had resisted them. Uh, I believe this is directly quoting the spokesperson but they also mentioned how they would allow women to work and study within certain frameworks of Islam, how women were going to be very active in society and how they were essentially the key part to society itself. But I think we kind of find that all hard to believe as back in 2001, when they were in control, they had very, very strict laws against women, you know, telling them not to show their faces, to cover up their windows, to stay indoors at all times. And the only way they could really go out was if they had a male family member or friend. And so essentially they were taking away the right to live all at once. So yeah, I think it's just it's just really hard to believe that they're going to live up to their word, especially seeing what they've done in the past. Well, I guess as a as a counterpoint to that one, I think the Taliban do have to be more moderate in their stance, especially given that now that they are in control, they have pretty much no soft power. Right? They literally just took over the country. And so I think that, yes, it would still be as extreme, but I do think that they would have to tone down on how hardline they were in a pre-U.S. invasion. Otherwise, they would be hit with sanctions. Um, they would be hit with probably military threats, but it, does, it seems unlikely that the Taliban would have, would not, would not, would work in a similar fashion as they did when they were in control years ago. Yeah, I definitely agree with you, David, and how they'll have to tone it down a notch. But the problem is, I don't think the evidence of what they've done ever since their insurgency, I don't think it evidence there's any evidence supporting that. Like, ever since they went back into power, women's lives have been endangered and their human rights have been threatened to a large degree. And I just, I'm afraid it's going to get worse, but hopefully external governments do intervene um yeah i really hope so i mean my main concern is that despite the lack of evidence that they will be more moderate in their stance not all countries have actually evacuated their embassies as far as i know pakistan china and russia's embassies have not been evacuated which means that on a political standpoint these countries are at, at the very least tolerating the taliban's likely hardline stance or it's more moderate but still pretty hardline stance which goes to show that the Taliban is not alone in the fight, um, thereby making it more unlikely that external governments would um, intervene because they now have some political backing from other countries that are more well-established, like Russia, China, and Pakistan. But yeah, I mean, I'm not trying to defend the Taliban's actions, and I also do hope that it doesn't go into the darkest path possible. There's a um, theory, too, that came up a couple years after the end of the um, Vietnam War. It's called the um, rever- reversal theory, which is about how um, countries, like when they have regimes that take over that generally are against a government that they were fighting in, like the United States in South and North Vietnam. And then there's also Russia and Hungary and all sorts of countries like that. There's a theory that usually those countries that have been at war 
against that larger superpower generally start to develop closer and closer ties to that country, in which that's been seen a lot, in, especially in places like Belarus and Vietnam, where the superpowers went in and were effectively forced out, but they still ended up having a, um, better relations with the country afterward. I guess that would tie into the, to the fact that even if a superpower is like sent out of a country, there's still a superpower, whether that be in terms of military or economic power. Um, and so I don't think a country has an option to not interact with the outside world, hence the lack of development in countries like North Korea and the, the extremely slow development when Iran was hit with sanctions by a joint coalition. And so while, yes, the, 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 I guess the relationship exists wherein, they, wherein countries would end up having closer ties with the superpowers that were once in their borders, I think in, the, in, in Afghanistan's case, because of the backing of countries like Pakistan, China, and Russia, they might not actually have a closer relationship with the Western states because there are already states that back them in the East and whatnot. Well, what might be an issue for um, the Taliban is also how their um, religious views coincide with the um, other major countries in Central Asia because of how China heads its own organization there with Russia that specifically targets radical um, religious practices, especially in Islam and Christianity. And especially with what is uh, apparently going on in Xinjiang, according to um, sources, there's the um, also the chance that uh, the Taliban in Afghanistan might be driven closer to India, or a country that they wouldn't be more naturally drawn to, but because they can't really be friends with Russia or China on their own moral grounds. So you're saying there like the Taliban's more connected with the uh, community in the India with Muslims, right? If you recall, that's if they're uh, trying to expand their religions and they're focusing to the, the first, first of all, it's the uh, Afghanistan, then maybe the Pakistan, inside of the India. I guess it's unlikely that Afghanistan would be able to um, be self-sufficient. And so the religious ties and, I guess, alignment of ideology with states like Pakistan is necessary for them to maintain control, at least in the long term. Otherwise, the... While yes, the Taliban is in power, we can already see the effects of destabilization in the mass evacuations in Kabul, right? So I think otherwise, uh, without um, quickly establishing ties with other more stable states and you know getting the economy back running, especially since investors have definitely pulled out of Afghanistan already, um, it seems that the Taliban's job is actually a lot harder now that they're in power. As of a couple hours ago, we have some updates to the Kabul airport bombing news. The U.S. military has just carried out a drone strike against what is said to be an ISIS-K planner in Afghanistan's eastern province amid warnings of possible future terrorist attacks targeting the last-ditch U.S. evacuation effort from the Kabul. And there's a desperate mission to airlift U.S. citizens and Afghans who assisted U.S. forces from the country by the end of the month, and it is now in its final phase. 
So the drone strike came a day after U.S. President Joe Biden vowed to retaliate for a terrorist attack on Thursday that killed 13 U.S. service members and at least 170 others outside Kabul's international airport, which is the um, airport attack we just talked about. So I just thought it was important to mention how the U.S. retaliated. And I was wondering, what do you guys think are the implications of that? In the inner the government, the not after participating in the terrorist in inner the problems of the of the country, and this actions of the this U.S. army that this not just leaves out guests and make pointing them the reverse side of their actions that as a follow of the uh, with the yeah i definitely think that this could do more harm than good because um attacks like this will definitely um engender further retaliation from the taliban and will probably lead to more lives being lost and more uh people in kabul being displaced i guess something that i thought of now was that the attacks imply that the Taliban and the U.S. are not in amicable relationships, right? Which in which then signify that the U.S. effort in evacuating Afghanistan, especially with their special envoys, um, along with people who have helped them in the war effort, like translators, guides, and other uh, Afghani staff, um, means that this was lacking. If anything, the military is one of the main institutions that is solely built to be a logistical uh, superpower, especially in the U.S.'s case, wherein they mobilized hundreds, hundreds of thousands of men, um, equipment, and armaments. Right? So given that the government knew well of the Taliban's actions, right, given history, and given that the government knew of the Taliban advances prior to the fall of Kabul, I find it strange then that this suicide bombing happened to begin with. I kind of assume that at the very least, the U.S. would safeguard the evacuation of their own. But that's not the case, as there were still troops on the ground in that explosion. So the situation is definitely destabilizing. um, And I fear for the lives of all the Afghanis still trying to get into the airport. And even those in the airport, now that the suicide bombing seems to have breached the perimeter or at least gotten to damage the perimeter among the, in the airport. I find it appalling that for a superpower that is that was projecting hard power in Afghanistan for more than 20 years, such a blunder could happen. All right, I think I'm going to have to end the conversation on the Taliban as for now because we do have another topic to move on to. So we're going to move a little bit closer to home and we're going to be talking about the Philippines under COVID-19. Recently, as of right now, President Rodrigo Duterte has approved the Interagency Task Force recommendation to place Metro Manila and Laguna under MECQ, otherwise known as Modified Enhanced Community Quarantine, from August 21 to 30. But as of right now, I believe we have a new update that MECQ will last longer until September 7th. So I guess the Philippines, the Philippine government's approach to dealing with the pandemic has been um, lackluster, to say the least, uh, given that among other countries in the region, 
we are significantly slower in containing and vaccinating our populations. Um, not to mention the lack of clarity in which the government has been enacting policies. For example, um, if you go to Philippine social media, you're bound to see some jokes about the different CQs the government has been using to um, guide the public on how they're supposed to act under these regulations. While the Philippines has gotten doses from other countries such as China and the US, the vaccination effort is still rather slow, especially given the rather convoluted process that is signing up for a vaccination and the distribution of these vaccinations. Um, there have been multiple articles about vaccination campaigns in different cities where you'd have people in line for six hours to get a vaccine only to not get a vaccine because of um, a policy in prioritization, i.e. they're not old enough or they do not have the requirements necessary to get the vaccine. Not to mention the often unsanitary areas, or sorry, not unsanitary, but um, inappropriate areas that these are held in. For example, gyms or schools where which on a normal on a normal vaccination drive isn't too bad of an idea until you've noticed that there are possibly hundreds of people lining up in very close proximity outside the gates and within the vaccination centers themselves thereby defeating the full purpose of the vaccination drive especially for those who get who go there to get a vaccine only to not get vaccinated yeah, it's really upsetting, especially considering that uh, those in first world countries um, who kind of came ahead of the game and purchased many vaccines prior to their distribution, which has led many developing countries such as the Philippines with a dearth of vaccination opportunities. And it's just so jarring to me how those countries are hogging all of those vaccines, yet due to the anti-vax movement that rages within them, they, many of their citizens are choosing not to get the vaccine despite their convenience and availability to the, to the public. And it's just really disappointing and unfair to many of us. And I feel that the um, consistency and the erratic lockdown schedule has been injurious to us because one, obviously we're not in school, we're not getting an education, uh, and um, I feel that the majority of the COVID cases in the Philippines are not as a result of the lockdowns, because uh, as long as you're outside, you're staying six feet apart with a mask and shield, you're not super likely to, um, to spread COVID-19, especially if you're vaccinated. But uh, generally, most of the uh, most of the spread of the virus comes from those in areas, those who are homeless or those who don't have access to proper shelter and solace in order to properly quarantine or to properly social distance because um, just economically they're unable to stay home and it's really a matter of class accessibility and I feel that those of us in Luzon or areas where we are fortunate enough to be able to stay home, I feel that the lockdown is doing more harm than good in general and that there definitely needs to be a more adequate and a more efficient approach to this pandemic. 
on the point of the lockdowns and on the economic um, kind of the economic causes of COVID nineteen transmissions, I I agree that um, yes, lockdowns are harmful to students, but not us as ISM students. We're actually some of the more fortunate ones, being able to go to Zoom classes, where we are all generally well off in a house with Wi-Fi connections, with access to a laptop and, you know, knowing how to type and whatnot. For the vast majority of students across the country who also have to deal with lockdowns, this isn't usually the case. Um, we have articles of lackluster DepEd modules, and we also have articles on the um, inconsistent teaching methods, given that teachers weren't trained to deal with a lockdown situation when they don't have their students in class, which makes sense. Um, in in the case of lockdowns, oh, yeah. So in, in the case of lockdowns, um, generally they're supposed to be efficient. But I think it's in the not the idea of the lockdown per se, but the lack of but but the implementation of lockdowns in the Philippines, along with a lack of social safety net for those who are most vulnerable to transmissions. Um, that being there, yes, uh, you, you're, you've pointed out that lockdowns are ineffective in areas because they aren't viable or enforced. And in the areas that they are enforced, they, they, they don't come with other policies that are supposed to prevent transmission, as I've mentioned, with um, people that are homeless or don't have proper access to protective equipment like masks. Um, in general, uh, only those of a higher socioeconomic class would be able to afford the vaccination would be able to afford to stay at home to get to get new masks every day once if ever they decide to go out and other such um, amenities that are necessary to stem the pandemic especially for those who aren't as well off yeah sorry thanks for clarifying that i meant um the lockdowns are ineffective in areas that lack access to proper shelter, gadgets, and technology in order to continue working from home or gaining a steady income and also attending school and staying inside and socially distancing. Because in a country where there's so much economic discrepancy, I feel that there needs to be a more varied and distinct approach regionally that addresses the core issues, which isn't the fact that the which isn't the fact that we're not locking down the country, but it's the fact that it's ineffective as a result of this inequality. Yeah, the idea or the ideal lockdown has definitely proven to work in countries like New Zealand and Australia at the very beginning of the pandemic, yet what the situation here in the Philippines lacks is the actual execution of these lockdowns, especially because the Philippines is actually the country that's been in the longest lockdown in the entire world, may I add, starting its official lockdown on March 9th of 2020. I think it's very concerning to see how, as time goes on, the execution of these lockdowns keeps weakening and weakening to the point in where us individuals are, you know, getting tired. It's very mentally draining at a certain extent, no matter where you are located in this country. We are going back and forth between ECQ, MECQ, GCQ, and then back to ECQ. It, it's, it leads us to ponder when the cycle is ever going to stop, or will it ever even stop? And on top of that, I think it's very disappointing to see that despite being an MECQ, we're still averaging into the tens of thousands of cases each day. I think that part of this, the uh, lockdown issue also comes from who's in charge and who isn't in charge. Because in uh, countries where lockdowns have been successful in Southeast Asia, like Vietnam, it's um, 
also run by people who are whose job is specifically that like a, in the Philippine government things are a lot more militantly organized and you have a lot of former generals and former military commanders whose knee-jerk reaction is just to say alright lock everything down and send in the police whereas the countries like Vietnam, Thailand and Cambodia who who have um people that are at least more qualified to um target each response. Now that's not saying that they don't have their issues obviously, but they're um more oriented towards such a situation whereas the Philippines everything is so packed together and between the extreme population density and the execution and the people in charge of it it's um much harder to get a covid result when dealing with something like that where you have lockdowns happening as a knee jerk rather than as a calculated move and then you have um all this paperwork and people being turned down because of one issue or another when there's no issue really for them to, to deal with and that sort of i think sort of leads into a spiral of issues that just snowballs over time definitely adding on to what Cahill said it's absolutely insane the amount of paperwork you need to get into the country or really to do anything in this country at this point. You have stacks and stacks of papers with the, the actual same information on each and every one of them, yet you're required to do all of that. I feel like it's unnecessary. You have to print it all out. You're having so much waste from these papers. Not even to mention the little paper sheets that you have to sign authorizing you to quite literally just enter the store. You have sheets and sheets of paper where you can literally just scribble because the security guards do not care. On top of that, I believe the Philippines is the only country to require face shields because there is a study done, a study, I say that in quotation marks, that was done proving that the face shields had a 93% chance at decreasing your risk of getting COVID, which if anybody had real common sense, that's that, that, that's just really hard to believe. How is a plastic shield doing that much? And I feel like if that was actually a credible study, more people would be using it and it would not just be the Philippines. Adding on to the sheets and also the face shield mandates. Uh, I think the sheets were with good intent. However, given the number of people who still have to work and have to interact with everyone else and aren't able to stay at home because of, social, because of the economic disparity among the classes, it is very hard to actually make that useful, especially when the people don't necessarily even have to write um, legibly. Like the number of sheets I've seen just stacked up in an odd looking pile of just random scraps of paper with names that definitely do not sound Filipino nor real, um, along with the strict enforcement of a face mask mandate, which multiple studies have now figured out that as long as you're outside and not within um, six feet of someone else, it's very unlikely that the face shield will actually help. And so the um, insistence on outdated, uh, on the legitimacy of outdated measures and the, I guess, um, lack of efficiency in, in, in maintain, in achieving the goals meant by, sorry, Sorry, let me, let me go over that again. I guess the uh, lack of efficiency in both um, the measures that are still implemented and the ones that are implemented but are not being um, kept up or aren't being used as effectively as they should be 
um, is definitely a major problem that the government would have to deal with if we are to get out of the pandemic situation. All right, I think that pretty much sums up our entire podcast. It's been a great 30 minutes, and I hope you guys enjoyed it. And if you haven't already, go listen to our next podcast episode, which we are going to film right now. But by the time this is posted, they will both be edited and already posted. So thank you guys again, and I hope you have a great day.